The scripture for today's sermon comes from the book of Job, chapter 41, verses 1 through 11. The word of God speaks to us. Can you draw out Leviathan with a fish hook or press down his tongue with a cord? Can you put a rope in his nose or pierce his jaw with a hook? Will he make many pleas to you? Will he speak to you soft words? Will he make a covenant with you to take him for your excuse me, <coughs> to take him for your servant forever? Will you play with him as with a bird? Or will you put him on a leash for your girls? Will traders bargain over him? Will they divide him up among the merchants? Can you fill his skin with harpoons or his head with fishing spears? Lay your hands on him. Remember the battle. You will not do it again. Behold, the hope of a man is false. He is laid low even at the sight of him. No one is so fierce that he dares to stir him up. Who then is he who can stand before me? Who has first given to me that I should repay him? Whatever is under the whole heaven is mine. This is the word of God to us. Thanks be to God. Thank you. Well, good morning, everybody. Hey, it is really good to be here with you. I get to serve all our frontline congregations on our central team of elders, but I've never gotten to preach God's word to you. I've gotten to hide in the back, worship Jesus with you and pray for you, but to get to sit under God's word together with you is a pleasure. So thanks for letting me be with you. And uh, let's pray and ask God to speak to us, and then we'll, uh, we'll hear God's word together. Father, thanks for your goodness. Thanks for your goodness. And actually, that's, that's what I want you to confront us with this morning is your goodness. I know so many of us are asking the question like, are, is he good? Can I trust him? That's why I wanted us to step into Job this morning. But I, I ask that you would confront us with your goodness, which seems like a strange turn of phrase because I want to be comforted with your goodness as well, but in places in my heart where I'm inclined to doubt your goodness, I pray that it would just like hit me full speed. I pray that for my brothers and my sisters. God, would you humble us, spirit of the living God, would you awaken faith in the hearts of every man and woman in this room? Some in a way that brings life, freedom from darkness. Others that brings depth of sanctification and growth and joy. You are the supreme Lord of everything, God, and we submit to you and your word now. So speak to us, we ask in Jesus' name and for his glory, amen. Job chapter one, verse one. There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job. This would have made a better children's story if his name was Buzz, but nevertheless, this isn't a children's story. This is a real account of the life of an incredibly wealthy man who lived outside of the geographic boundaries of Israel. 
Some even would argue that he lived prior to God's creation of a covenant people of Israel. This is a very old book. And there are many things about Job that we do not know, but many things were told about him from the jump in verses one to five of chapter one. We're told that Job was a righteous man, that he was blameless and upright. He feared God and he turned away from evil. That doesn't mean he was sinless. It means he understood what to do with his sin, not to try to pay for it himself, but to repent and confess and bring it to God and ask God to pay for it. We also see from the jump that Job was outrageously wealthy. And I mean, think of any category of wealth that you have in your mind, and Job had it in stacks, so much so that he probably didn't even think about it. He had livestock, he had homes, estates, property, Um, he had money, he flew private and didn't think about it, he had a, a way more impressive sneaker collection than you have, all the things that you think like, man, this is where wealth is stored, Job had it. In fact, the text tells us that he was one of the greatest of all the people of the East. Many historians think Job was the ancient king of Edom. But he didn't just have staggering piles of money. He had categories in his life that make a person wealthy because they're just resources. And on top of all that, the text tells us Job had the wealth of a big family, and the text tells us Job was a good dad. He had imparted to his children a culture of love and generosity and hospitality, and his kids hung out together. They hadn't like blocked each other on Facebook and refused to speak to each other. His kids were friends, and they gathered together and welcomed other people into their gatherings, and the text tells us that Job prayed for his kids. On top of all that, we're told in chapter one of Job that Job became a party in a cosmic controversy that he had no knowledge of and no context for. If you look at verse six and following of Job chapter one, we see there was a day when there was a courtroom scene in heaven and we find Satan in the presence of the most high God presenting accusations regarding the people of God. And for reasons that we do not understand, God adduces Job as an example. Yeah, 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 Satan, I hear about that, I hear about that, I hear about that. Have you noticed my servant Job? For reasons that we do not understand and for reasons that Job did not know about. God says to Satan, hey, there's nobody like Job. He's special. And Satan says, you're fooling yourself, God. You're deceiving yourself. This is an accusation about the character of God. He says, God, you think Job loves you. You think Job worships you. You think Job is devoted to you, but that's only because you're paying him off. If you didn't let him have all this stuff, he'd curse you to your face. It's an amazing accusation Satan makes. It's an amazing proposal that goes together with this accusation. What is more shocking is that God in heaven grants Satan permission to obliterate this man's life. Fine, says the infinite 
beautiful, merciful God. Take whatever you want away from him. Just don't touch his life. And instantly, Job is swept up into a hurricane of suffering and chaos. Just trace your finger down chapter one if you have a Bible with you. We see that immediately in the span of a day, an enemy army steals a massive quantity of his livestock and either kills or kidnaps whatever servants were working with them. Then fire falls upon another portion of his estate, killing livestock and killing servants. And while you're wrapping your mind around that, an enemy army, the Chaldeans, decides that today would be a great day to steal all of Job's camels and murder all the staff that took care of them. And I don't know if you're like me. When someone has a car wreck, you're like, hey, hey, I I get it. Are people okay? I realize your car's totaled. That's a bummer. Is everyone okay? It's like as Job has lost possession after possession after possession, we've already been told he's a righteous man. So what you would expect is Job to say, man, that is devastating. I've been bankrupted in a day, but at least my family's okay. And then the text tells us that a natural disaster of some kind falls upon Job's kids and kills them all in a second. And we hear four times this jarring, devastating refrain. And I alone have escaped to tell you. Job, they took everything. And I alone have escaped to tell you, Job. They killed everyone, and I alone have escaped to tell you, Job. You lost everything, and I alone have escaped to tell you, Job. Your kids are dead, and I alone have escaped to tell you. Imagine what that refrain sounded like in Job's ears as he tried to wrap his mind around the comprehensive, catastrophic loss. All based on a wager that he knew not of. Having lost everything. The text tells us in verse 20, Job gets up, And in a sign of mourning, he tears his clothes and shaves his head and falls on his face on the ground and worships God. In the face of comprehensive, catastrophic loss, he doesn't say, oh, no big deal. He takes on the clothing. He dons the uniform of a mourner and then he worships God and he says, I didn't bring anything here with me. I won't take anything here from me. God, I trust you. God, I worship you. And this isn't the end of Job's misery, by the way nor is it the end of the cosmic controversy that gave rise to Job's misery. In chapter two, there is a second act to this cosmic 
courtroom scene. And it plays out just the same as the first one does. The courtroom of the Most High God is assembled and Satan is in the room. And again, God says to the accuser of the saints, hey, Satan, have you seen Job? Which the irony of that is astonishing. He had crushed Job to dust. And God says, there's no one like him. There's no one like him. He loves me. He trusts me. He worships me. Though I let you take everything away from him. So much packed into that statement. So much present in this conversation that Job never heard. Job has no context for this. Satan's response is more accusation to God. He says, yeah, right. You cheated. You still have this safety leash on Job. You're still acting like he's devoted to you, but that's because a man will do anything in the world just to protect his own flesh. Let me touch his skin, God. Let me touch his life, and you'll see what is really inside Job. When he's pressed, God, you'll see what really comes out. God says, for reasons we do not understand. And for a conversation that Job never hears, God says for a second time, fine, do whatever you want to him. Just don't kill him. And this man who's lost everything, this man who's lost everything, who's still trying to catch his breath and do the math and understand now how he has no children and no wealth and no resources and no social standing, now finds himself, chapter two tells us, covered from the tip of his head to the sole of his feet with loathsome sores, chapter two, verse seven says. And the author of Job tells us in verse eight, that Job takes a piece of broken pottery, which no doubt is something that used to be his stuff, and goes out and sits down on a pile of rubble that used to be his stuff, and starts to scrape himself with the pottery. And now at this point, I hope you're asking yourself the question, hey man, why on earth are we talking about Job. You're like, now I understand why David doesn't let you ever preach here. <laughs> you had to sneak in while he's on sabbatical and be a huge downer. Why are we talking about Job? And there's an answer. There's an answer. I believe Job is asking the question that you and I are asking multiple times per day. I think Job is putting right out in front of us the question that we're asking all the time. And the question isn't, does God exist? Now, I know some of you in here are asking that question. And I love the fact that you're asking it at Frontline. Frontline people, if you haven't figured it out, are weird as the day is long. But they're, but they're loving people and they love God and they trust Jesus and they repent when they'll let you down or sin against you. This is an amazing place to ask big questions about God. If you're trying to figure out, is this book even true and is the God that these people claim to love, is he even real? You're in the right place. 
and just stick it out and be confident enough to ask the questions full-throated and look people in the eyes when you ask them. That, that's not the question Job's asking, though. Job isn't asking, is God, does God exist? And oddly enough, he isn't even asking, is God powerful? Because there's this thing inside of us that's inclined when suffering comes upon us to go, what, can God even do anything about this? Job isn't asking, why aren't God's hands on the wheel? Job presumes God exists. Job presumes God is driving and that no one else in the universe can drive. Job's like, God, there's no one like you. You have all authority, all power, all capability. God, like, Job doesn't question anything about that. The question Job asks is, can I trust this God with my life? Can I trust him with my suffering? Can I trust him with my heartbreak? Isn't that the question you're asking? Like when the world is careening and it feels like chaos is winning, the question we're inclined to ask is, can I trust God? The question Job asks over and over again throughout this book is, what kind of God runs the world this way? Isn't that the question you're asking? When you're dealing with abuse, addiction, you're dealing with uncertainty, you're dealing with conflict, you're dealing with like problems that you thought were resolved a year ago and now they're back and they're worse. You're longing for God to give you kids or longing for God to bring healing to the kids you have. Like all the problems that we bear, aren't you asking God, hey, can I lean my weight on you here? That's what, that's what Job's asking. Here's what I love about him. He asks the question, God, can I trust you out loud and in front of his friends repeatedly? Like we, if we have the courage to ask the question at all, we ask it in private in our journals. When in fact most of us are trying to drink the question out of our minds or buy the question out of our minds or perform the question out of our minds or entertain the question out of our minds or travel the question out of our minds, Job just stands up amidst his rubbish heap and asks the question out loud with his friends. What kind of God runs the universe this way? Can I trust him? And I want us to hear how he asks the question because I want us to encounter God the way Job encounters God. I want us to have the courage to stand with him in those cringe moments. If you read Job, it has lots of cringe and like side-splitting humor. The book is hysterical, but stark. I, I want you to encounter God the way Job encounters God. It's why I became a pastor in the first place. I want us to encounter God the way Job encounters him. And 
in order for us to do that, we need to understand just quickly the form of Job and the context in which this conversation about Leviathan comes up. So before we even get to God's questions to Job about Leviathan, let's talk briefly about the form of Job or the genre of Job and then the context in which chapter 41 emerges. So quickly about the form. And maybe you're like, hey man, I'm not stupid, I get it. But I think it's, I think it's worth naming. 95% of Job is poetry. Chapter one, chapter two, chapter 32, and part of chapter 42 are prose. But the rest of the book, and it's long, the rest of the book is poetry. And it's worth mentioning because poetry isn't linear. Poetry's not straight. Poetry's angular. Poetry is like a knife that you think you understand what it does and you pick it up and the handle cuts your hand. J.I. Packer says that poetry communicates heart to heart, not head to head. So we come to poetry and we want it to give us the answers. We want to treat it like it's math but it's not math. I, I remember my first significant encounter with poetry was as a sophomore in college, and I, overestimating my gifts and acumen and ability, decided I wanted to take an upper-level literature class as a sophomore in college. And I don't know if you know anything about me, but wasn't nothing upper-level about me. I didn't have upper-level brains, upper-level experience, and I wasn't an upper-level classman, so this was a fool's errand, but I take a class in romantic poetry. Because I think I'm brilliant and I think I'm romantic. And I'm like, this has got to work for me. <laughs> and I get in the class and, and friends, it's, it's, not, it's not days. It's minutes in the class and I realize I am doomed in this class. <laughs> I'm, I'm going to fail. And I, I remember leaving and taking the syllabus and just pouring through the work, reading it over and over and over again and thinking, this doesn't, this doesn't make sense to me. And I went to... My professor made an appointment. I said, hey, I'm just gonna be, I'm gonna be 100 with you. I'm, I'm terrified. I'm from Southern Oklahoma. I don't know anything about poetry at all. I'm reading this poetry and I, I, I can't figure out the answers. And he smiled and he said, good. Poetry isn't about finding the answers. He said, Kevin, poetry isn't about learning the prescription it's not about figuring out the formula. Let poetry take up residence in you and it will lead you where you're supposed to go. This isn't about the answers. I was completely unpersuaded by his conversation. <laughs> so I thanked him for his time and I left the class and called a friend who had taken it the year before and I said, hey, I'm in Martindale's romantic poetry class. Can I have the answers? <laughs> he laughs at me. He said, dude, I'll give you the answers. But he gave me the same exact speech Dr. Martindale had given me. This isn't about formulas. It's not about, and I'm like, oh, great. He said, hey, man, just let poetry take up residence in you and lead you where you're supposed to go. And I was like, I, maybe I'm not cut out to be a literature major. <laughs> but see, this is what Job is doing. And here's the reason why. Because when, when you have questions as big as Job is asking, they can't be solved with a formula or a hot take. Listen to what Christopher Ashe says in his book on the book of Job called Out of the Storm. Job cannot be distilled. It's a narrative with a slow pace 
and long delays. Why? Hey, some of you need to hear this so badly this morning. Because there is no instant working through grief. No quick fix to pain. No message of Job in a nutshell. Hey, friends, like when we navigate struggle, chaos, crisis, suffering, there isn't a prescription. There's not a formula. There's not a hack. And what we see in the book of Job is God gives us himself in the place that we're demanding answers. So let's think about Job's demand for answers. Almost immediately, as this hurricane of chaos comes upon Job, he starts demanding to meet with God. And we see this all over the book, sometimes politely, sometimes quite impolitely, if we can be honest. He's saying over and over again, I want a meeting. I want to meet with God. I want to sit down with him and plead my case. I I want him to explain to me why what's happening is happening. Which isn't it strange? What is it about us that we think if we just had more information, we would suffer better? Job says, I want to talk with him. And he gets angry and he says stuff like, hey God, you know where I live. You you know where you sent all this to me. Could you come to the place of delivery? Could you come to the recipient and could we talk? I mean, if 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 you need a tender encounter with Job, in chapter nine, verse 16, he puts his greatest fear on the table. He says, man, my, my greatest fear is that God will actually show up to talk to me, but he won't listen to me at all. He won't listen to what I have to say. Over and over again, we get this demand. I wanna put you on the witness stand, Job says, and I wanna cross-examine you. And then in chapter 38, God shows up. What's amazing in chapter 37, um, Job's friend Elihu, Job's friend Elihu um, starts describing God in terms of this storm. And I don't know if he's looking on the horizon at the storm or if he's just talking about God as a storm, but what we know in chapter 38 is God shows up out of a storm to talk to Job. I, I, I kind of believe that Elihu's just waxing eloquently about the storm on the horizon and saying God's kind of like that. And then God speaks to Job out of the storm, chapter 38, verse one. And then he starts asking Job questions. But what you can't miss about this is Job's been so terrified that God wouldn't listen to him. And what God is saying initially is, hey Job, I've heard everything you've asked me. You've been posing questions to me and I've heard them. And Job, I have questions for you. Can I ask you some questions, Job? I'll just highlight a few of them for you. This is beginning in chapter 38. He says, hey Job, where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Hey Job, were you there when I engineered the piers upon which to set the mountains on top of? Hey Job, jog my memory, were you there when I drew the boundaries for the oceans and commanded the molecules of water not to go beyond this certain point? Uh, Job, help me understand this. I love this chapter 38, verse verse 18. Job, have you comprehended the expanse of the earth? Just a casual question from the Lord Most High. (laughs) 
Hey, Job, have you comprehended the expanse of the earth? And he moves from the fundamental elements of the earth and he moves into things like weather and meteorology. Verse 22 of chapter 38. Have you, hey, Job, have you seen where I keep all the snow and hail? Hey, Job, have I shown you the garage where I park the sunrise? Have we talked about that? And then he moves from meteorology into, uh, what, what do we call constellations? Astrology, no, that's not astrology, sounds wrong. That thing, astronomy, that's exactly what I said earlier. He moves into the realm of, not gastronomy, but astronomy. And he asks Job questions about the constellations. Verse 31 and 32 of chapter 38. Hey, Job, help me understand. Did you arrange the Big Dipper in the sky like that? Hey, Job, when you look at Orion, did you arrange the stars that way and command them to stay that way? Then he moves from the space and out there back right onto Job's farm. And then in chapter 39, he asks Job all these questions about animals, about deer and donkeys and oxen and ostriches. And the reason why those animals are important is these are animals that Job would be familiar with. But God's asking Job questions about things he is thoroughly familiar with that he can't answer. And then he moves from animals Job is familiar with to animals that Job has no conception of how to navigate mythical, apocalyptic, gigantic, terrifying, fire-breathing animals. In chapter 40, verses 15 to 24, God asks Job questions about behemoth. And then the entirety of chapter 41, 34 verses, God asks Job questions about Leviathan. Now, Behemoth and Leviathan are big characters in the book of Job, so it's important for us to understand how they're functioning there. And a lot of people say that Behemoth and Leviathan, there's really two schools. One group of people says, hey, Behemoth and Leviathan are real creatures. They're the kind of creatures that you and I could go to the zoo now and visit. And some of these people would say behemoth is like a hippopotamus and Leviathan is like a crocodile. Or, as I had a conversation after the nine with, some people think that behemoth and Leviathan would have been dinosaurs. I think there's a problem with this view. And it's at least twofold. The first thing is, I don't see and we don't see any corollary between animals that we know existed on the earth and the kinds of descriptions that come from the mouth of God describing them. Secondly, I don't think whether or not Job could catch a hippopotamus or a crocodile or a brontosaurus actually has any real bearing on Job's ability or inability to govern the earth and to execute justice throughout the earth. Instead, I fall on a second camp, which by the way, if these were real animals that you could go visit at the zoo, it doesn't change my reading of this at all. But, but I follow a second group that says that these are storybook characters from the ancient Near East. That God is using something that's very real in Job's imagination, even if, it was some, even if it wasn't something real that he could go pet on the ground. And by the way, if you read Job chapter three, we know that whatever Leviathan was, Job was familiar with it because he's already conjured this animal when he's cursing the day of his birth. But here's how I think it's best for us to understand what behemoth and Leviathan were. This is Christopher Ash again from his commentary on the book of Job. And he says this, behemoth and Leviathan are storybook creatures, but they are also utterly real and true. 
It's just that their truth is conveyed to us in storybook descriptions that arouse in us a response of visceral fear. It seems that the behemoth may be the storybook embodiment of the figure of death. And the Leviathan in biblical imagery is the arch enemy of God, the prince of the power of evil, Satan, the God of this world, the one who holds the power of death. And in the the Leviathan, we see the embodiment of beastliness, of terror, of undiluted evil. As Job suffers, his greatest and deepest fear is that the monster who attacks him is unrestrained, that the attacks will go on forever with unrelieved ferocity, and that the monster has been given a free hand, unlimited access to Job and to his life. He's afraid that there is no sovereign God who has evil on a leash, but there is. And when Job grasps that, he is filled with awe. Now don't let the weirdness of Leviathan have you miss the questions God's asking. Whether Leviathan was a crocodile or a dragon or Satan himself, the point of God's questions have the same effect. And I want you to just read with me some of the questions that God asks Job about Leviathan. This is the passage that was read at the beginning of our time. And it's critical for us to understand that this is unmediated speech between God and man. God is talking to Job directly and personally. And by the way, hilariously. These questions are hilarious, hilarious. Let's just go through them. Hey, Job, can you catch Leviathan with a fish hook? You gonna take your Zebco rod and reel out and just land a hook in Leviathan and bring him in, Job? Hey, Job, you gonna make Leviathan fish for you? You you gonna co-opt him and make him your servant? I I don't wanna shame you, but I know a lot of you talk goo-goo talk to your pets, right? JJ, we know you do. <laughs> he says, hey, hey, Job, are you going to make Leviathan talk baby talk to you? Verse three, you going to do goo-goo talk like JJ does with his puppy? <laughs> then he says, hey, Levi- uh, Job, I want to ask you more questions about the potentiality of you having Leviathan as a pet. Verse five, will you play with Leviathan like a bird? I got to be honest, that that question was always a weird one to me because what, what do you mean you play with a bird? It didn't make any sense to me until about three years ago, the Collies became proud owners of a parakeet. <laughs> My son is the owner and chief trainer of Banksy, the male parakeet. I say male because we spent about two years thinking Banksy was female, so we've had some gendering problems in our home. <laughs> Banksy is male. But Banksy has been trained. You know why? Because birds, it turns out, love food, and you can con them into doing all manner of stuff to get some. They'll talk, they'll dance, they'll push stuff around, they'll ride skateboards, they'll go on a swing, they'll come down and hang out at the dinner table, they'll sit on your shoulder while you do your homework. God asks Job, hey, you gonna play with Leviathan like Quinn Cawley plays with Banksy? And then this question Trips me out, verse five. You gonna put him on a leash for your daughters? You gonna bring him home with a big cute little bow on his head, Job? 
Then he asks him this question. Job, can you buy fillets of Leviathan on a styrofoam tray from the grocery store? Are people going to chop Leviathan up and fight over who pays what to eat it? And, and, and all the while, people think, man, this is God just butting Job around. It's God wagging his chin. But it's not. It's God inviting Job to engage his imagination, to answer questions that Job already knows the answer to in his head, but in the places inside of him that he can't explain or explain to himself. God's giving him an opportunity to go on a journey there. Have you gone on that journey? Can you ask and answer those hard questions in those hard places? Here's the thing. Job knows the answer to each one of these. But God doesn't hand it to him and make him agree with it. I think the hardest lesson I've learned as a pastor, and it has been a hard lesson to learn with lots of consequences. And this is like whether I'm counseling someone or coaching someone or just navigating life as a pastor, it's way more powerful when you let someone come up with the answer to something themselves instead of giving them the answer and asking them to agree with it. Hey, Job, I created the earth, didn't I? It's very different than, hey, were you there when I created the earth? Hey, Job, I've got evil under control. Don't you believe me? Don't you trust me? Why would you ask if I'm trustworthy? Hey, Job, can we talk about storybook personifications of death and evil? It's God letting Job answer the questions himself. I'll give you Christopher Ashe one more time. Here's a tour of the part of the created order that lies outside the limits of the world that is domesticated and ordered by human beings. They will help answer the question, how do you and I respond when the wild world breaks into the farm? When the disorder and chaos of a dark world invades our ordered world and makes mincemeat of our plans and hopes. Come outside the farm, says the Lord to Job, and have a thoughtful tour of the world outside. Have we ever realized that suffering is like this bright spotlight that's shining in our eyes to the point that we can't see anything else around us? Like, oftentimes I've heard somebody say, that guy's being incredibly selfish. And I think, of course he's being incredibly selfish. He can't see anything else except the suffering that's beating him in his own face. And suffering's like that for us, isn't it? It becomes isolating and it removes all other context and all you can see is the light in front of you. It destroys your periphery. It robs dynamics and ability to see light elsewhere. And what God is doing for Job and for you and for me in this moment is he's taking the spotlight out of Job's eyes and shining it around the world, the cosmos outside of him. And saying, Job, is it possible that you could consider some other things outside of you? And what's Job's answer to the questions God asks him? He answers God twice. He says, man, I have clouded your glory with lots of words. That's his first answer. 
And the second one is, Job says, I've heard about you my entire life. But now, Job says, I've seen you. So what I want to rightly do, says Job, your friend and mine, is I want to put my hands over my mouth and stop talking. You see, it really bums me out when commentators or Christians say, here you have in this book of Job, Job asks God all these questions and God never answers a single one of them. God gives Job himself. Like Job asks all these questions. God, I want to understand this. I want to understand this. I want to understand this. And God steps into Job's world and shines the light of Job's suffering on himself. God gives Job more than he could have ever wanted, more than he could have ever asked for, and he gives him the thing he was yearning for. He says, Job, here I am. Look at me. Look at me. What I long for you and me to see is when we experience this conversation, this poetic journey, this chaotic, agonizing narrative, we see at the end that we don't have to fear Leviathan. We don't have to fear Leviathan. We don't have to fear Leviathan. Because the good news to us is God has slain Leviathan. And and we know something that Job didn't know. God slew Leviathan through the perfect life, the sacrificial death, and the cosmic reshaping resurrection of his son Jesus. Jesus slayed Leviathan. Jesus bound Leviathan and Jesus announces to us there is a day coming when Leviathan, though he appears to be ravaging the world unchecked, this one who is chained will be utterly and fully and finally and consummately defeated. Like this is our hope and it's a real hope. It's not some kind of therapeutic fiction. It's not some cleverly devised tale so that you just step right and obey. This is who God is. In the midst of chaos, we can have real hope. This is the word of the Lord in Revelation chapter 12, verses nine to 11. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world, Leviathan. He was thrown down to the earth and his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. And they have conquered him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. For they loved not their lives even unto death. Pray with me. Oh God, more than having answers, more than having something tidy, more than having something checked off, more than a prescription to follow or a hack to embrace, I want to encounter you the way Job encountered you. I want my brothers and sisters in this room to encounter you the way Job encountered you. And I I want all of us to be courageous to ask the questions Job asked out loud. 
and I know that you're faithful and you won't, you won't leave us to ourselves. And I know that some of us have Job's fear that you'll show up and not listen to us or others of us have a different fear that you won't show up at all. But God, would you, would you just do something supernatural, miraculous in us? Would you show us that because of who you are for us in Jesus, we have nothing to fear. Though the, the chaos of our own storms may toss against us for reasons that we do not understand. We can have real hope. We can have real confidence. You are trustworthy. And I think about the song that I sang in my earliest days of being a Christian. I don't know who wrote it or where it came from. When everything is said and done, there's nothing left to say. The cross of Christ is proof enough that you're good. Jesus, that is true. Would you enable us to build our lives upon it? Would you enable us to comfort one another in despair because of it? And Spirit of the living God, would you remind us of the words of Jesus, strengthen us, comfort us, enable us to ponder the love of God? We ask in Jesus' name and for his glory, amen. Thank you.